How's it going? My name is Lane. I'm the pastor here. If we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you. Uh, we're going to start by asking our ushers to come forward as we receive this morning's tithes and offerings. Giving out of our finances is something that we do as an act of worship. Uh, however, if you are new here, if this is your first time, please feel no obligation to give at this time. This is something that we do for those of us who call this church our home. A couple of announcements. Uh, first is that we have a worship interest meeting. That means if you're interested in worship <laughs> in any capacity, if you want to play an instrument, if you want to be on the tech team, production, if you want to uh, uh, make t-shirts for them or something, I'm sure that there is a spot. Um, so uh, October 2nd from 2 to 4 p.m., if you're interested in any way, come and hang out here with Pastor Ashley and she'd love to get you connected. Three is uh, the connect cards are for people who are new. If you are new here, you can fill that out. It's in the seat back and you can bring that to the tent and they'll give you a gift. I'm not sure what kind of gift. Maybe it'll be a puppy. That would be really cool. Uh, you can bring that to them. They'll give you a gift. Uh, the Her Story Women's Event. That is happening this Friday at B4 Church. That's where I come from. Uh, I was there before I came here. And so that's happening this Friday. If you not heard Joe Saxton speak, you are missing a very vital part of your life. And so you need to go see Joe Saxton. And the last announcement is this. Groups are starting October 2nd. So the signups for that are live right now. You can sign up for that. If you want to be in a group that is for young adults, for college students, for families, for couples, for uh, macaroni art, I'm sure there is something for you in a group. So you can sign up for that today in the lobby or on the website. Are you guys getting a lot of feedback out there? Is that sounding kind of weird? Do you want me to give you a second, Ken? Hello. Check. Sound guy is a hard job. Can we give Ken a round of applause? <laughs> when everything goes right, they don't notice you, but something goes wrong, everyone's staring at you. All right, so we've been in the book of James in a series called Wisdom Lived Out. And we've been asking the question, since we live in an information, or an age that is so full of information and knowledge and misinformation and anxiety, what does it look like to be a people of Jesus who enact wisdom in our lives? And last week we uh, were in chapter 4, and this week we're going to finish up chapter 4. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in James chapter 4 at the very end of the chapter. Before we start reading the passage, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever thought about what you would do if you were to win the lottery? Who ever thought that? Yeah, it's a fun game to play, right? Think about all the debts you'd pay off and all the people you'd help, yada, yada, all the yachts that you'd buy. How many of you ever thought about what you'd do if you finally landed that ideal job, that ideal career? Or thought about what you'd do if you found that certain someone? Or when you think about having the things that you want, whatever it may be, what does your life look like? If someone were to, were to find your list of New Year's resolutions, what would they think is the goal of your life? If someone were to examine your bank statements, what would they determine is the highest priority in your life? What is your life pointing to? The reason why the fantasy of winning the lottery is so enticing is because uh, limitless money would seemingly give us limitless power and influence, right? And our limited understanding of power and influence, we feel that it would give us some freedom and some control over our lives, right? If there's something I want more of, I can obtain it. If there's something I want less of, I can get rid of it. Money and power give us what we like to believe is more control over our lives. And we like to have control over our lives. <laughs> That's why we put so much of our time and energy into devoting and securing and maintaining control. 
There's a documentary series that's created to examine the innermost complexities of the human condition. It's called The Office. And <laughs> there's an episode of The Office where the managerial genius Michael Scott is trying to recruit uh, a talented salesman by the name of Danny Cordray. And he pitches him and he says this, he says, do you want more freedom, less freedom, or to stay the same? <laughs> Which is a ridiculous question. And Danny obviously responds, more freedom. <laughs> if we were completely honest, I bet that 99% of us, of people in this room, if someone with the ability to do something about it were to ask you, do you want more freedom, less freedom, or to stay the same? Do you want more money, less money, or to stay the same? We'd want more money and more freedom, right? I already used this quote a couple of weeks ago, but Soren Kierkegaard wrote, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. We like freedom and we like money because we think it gives us control. And I want control because I believe that the best master of my fate ultimately is me. Spoiler alert, it usually doesn't end well when we live our lives that way because anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Let's talk about anxiety for a second. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, an estimated 31.1% of adults in the U.S. experience an anxiety disorder at some time in their lives. 31.1% is a lot. The state of our world is anxious. One could argue that this world has been more, this has been more characteristic of our world than it has in decades past. We live in very anxious times. So it's no wonder that in these anxious times, it's easy to observe people clamoring for control, or at least clamoring for what people believe will give them control or make them feel in control. Because the pandemic forced us to feel out of control for so long that we don't know who to trust anymore, right? We assume that the equation is this, that my anxiety plus more power will give me control. We'd like to think that more power, more influence, more money, more freedom gives us the control of what happens around us. And we believe that control will ultimately give us peace. But ultimately... That control is an illusion. 99.9% .9 of the things that happen in the world around me is outside of my control. The truest equation, actually, then, is that my illusion of control and my pursuit of control is actually more anxiety. The more I reach for this mirage of control, the more anxiety I experience. What the scriptures teach us is that when we try to command the future, when we try to control the outcomes of our lives, that anxiety turns to arrogance. We transform our worry into a sort of false confidence, right? We see this all the time on social media and on the internet, right? Somebody feels insecure about something, and so their comments become very bold and courageous, right? Because we know they would never say that to you if you were like in an elevator with them. But because it's on the internet, we follow this freedom to say whatever we want. Because we know that the loudest and most boastful voices in the room are typically the people who are the most insecure. Everyone knows that the most aggressive and prideful bullies are the children who felt the least amount of power, control, and safety in their own lives, right? So they exercise power and control over others. Do you all know what this is? It's a Chinese finger trap, right? So the way this works is I put my fingers in either side, and the idea is I need to get my hands out of this trap. 
But the more I pull, the more power I give to trying to get it out, the more entrapped I become. The more effort I yield, the more trapped I am. It's only when I surrender my power and control that I can experience freedom. When I give in, when I release it, can I be set free? So the real equation is that anxiety, my anxiety, plus surrender gives me peace. When I'm able to surrender my life to Jesus, that's what gives me peace, not more control. Surrender. Last week, we read from the first half of this chapter that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. So the pathway for all of us in this life of Jesus is to opt out of the way that our culture clamors for control. It's only when we trust in Jesus and realize that everything good in our lives comes from and belongs to him that will truly have peace. Yeah? Let's read chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So there's a couple of ways to take this passage at face value, yeah? When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and we were memorizing the entire book of James, right? Which is a lot. And as we were memorizing it, I had a buddy who got to this section of the passage and was like, all of us are living in sin. And I was like, you're probably right, but what do you mean? Um, and he said, well, whenever I give my plans for the future, whenever I say anything, I don't say if it's in God's will. I just, I just do it. So he started being really religious about it. And he started, whenever he would say anything about the future, he would say, if the Lord wills, right? I'm going to go to the store tomorrow. Uh, I mean, if the Lord wills it. I'm going to go to Disneyland next week. Well, I mean, that, that's if the Lord wills it, right? Was James trying to get us to talk like that? I don't think so. I don't think the aim of James was to give us more religion, right? More religious practices. That before we say anything future tense, we say, if the Lord wills. But rather, I think James was aiming to reorient the posture of our hearts, which is a much more difficult thing to do, yeah? And now James is being, being pretty firm here, and he's offering correction for people who claim to follow Jesus and yet have misplaced priorities. What he's addressing in these business people is the fact that they are boastfully making plans that serve their own interests. Now, is it the making of future plans that James is correcting here? I don't think so. Is it wrong to want to make money, to invest in the future, and to provide for yourself and for your, for your family? No, I don't think that's what James is getting at either. What James appears to be challenging is the fact that these particular people are failing to consider what the Lord wants for their lives as they make their plans. When we become followers of Jesus, we don't just add Jesus onto our lives. Although sometimes that can be how this faith is misconstrued. I live my life until I find Jesus, and then he comes along with me, and he makes my life better. Sometimes it's easy to fall into that deception that, that this faith is about sprinkling a little Jesus dust onto what I already do. 
to kind of make things magically happen, right? Because Jesus will answer my prayers. Jesus will help me pass my exams. Jesus will help me get my dream job. Jesus will help me, my team, win the Super Bowl. Uh, Jesus will find, help me find my checklist soulmate. Uh, he makes me feel good when I'm sad. The Jesus dust that we sprinkle over our own agendas. We talk about inviting Jesus into our heart, and sometimes we forget that the heart is a throne from which to rule. There's a reason why we say Jesus is Lord. And this is not Lord like, you know, when you're in Scotland and you own a piece of land and you're like a Lord or a lady, you know? Have you seen those ads on the internet, right? Like, you owned a square foot of land and now you're a Lord. That's cool. That's not what this is about. Jesus being Lord means that he has sovereignty over the cosmos. That he's the king of creation. Jesus is ultimate truth, ultimate power, ultimate love. So saying yes to Jesus means it costs me everything. Everything. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Following Jesus is supposed to be a decision which costs us everything. For the disciples, it meant that most of them would be executed for their devotion. Sometimes the promise of heaven doesn't come when we want it to. And when that happens, our faithfulness is put to the test. Are we willing to fortify our devotion to Jesus when things get hard? Or is it just fairy dust? James is reminding us that our lives are supposed to belong to the Lord. When we say yes to Jesus, he's waking us up out of our complacency and reminding us that life with him is supposed to be full of divine purpose and meaning. And the purposes of the kingdom are of eternal value, and they should take precedence over the things of worldly value. When we make plans for the future, everything should always orbit around the will of the Lord for our lives. The question isn't whether or not Jesus' Jesus's stuff fits into my plans and my priorities. No, the question is whether or not I am willing to reorient my priorities for the sake of the kingdom, giving up things of this worldly value in exchange for what is of eternal value. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he continues in verse, in verse 24, and he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will take one, uh, hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's that theme again that James keeps hitting home. We cannot be divided in our loyalties. When we say yes to Jesus, it is yes all the way. Do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> that was a Yoda quote. I'm very disappointed in all of you. I'm just kidding. So, these hypothetical people that James is addressing, they've revealed where their treasure is, right? They value monetary gain over everything. What Jesus' followers value is not tangible in this way, right? So more than a life that is secure, more than a life that is in one's control, following Jesus is about leading a life that seeks the kingdom. 
Not the reductive hope that one day I will experience heaven when I die, but the pertinent hope that through me, heaven can be enacted wherever I put my feet right now. So James says that our life is a vapor, right? It's a puff of smoke. It's precious. It's brief. It's elusive. This imagery of life being like a vapor or being like a, a, a mist, it's very common imagery in the scriptures. It's something that's here one moment and gone the next. And it's mysterious and it's ever-changing and it's elusive. Have you ever tried to grab a puff of smoke? I hope not. That would be weird. You can't, right? In the same way, you cannot truly grab your life and its outcomes. You can't grasp it. So why waste what little time we have on such an impossible endeavor? One can waste one's life grasping at it, trying to control it, or one can be present to it as it rises up to God in worship. Like the incense of the tabernacle, our life is a vapor offered to God. Again, trying to plan for and invest in the future is not what James is condemning. But are you planning for the future at the expense of your present? At the expense of your devotion? Are you so anxious and wrapped up in what may or may not happen tomorrow that you fail to do the good that is right in front of you? Because sometimes doing the right thing today means losing what I believe will give me security tomorrow. It means that sometimes. My children will not care if I work so hard to put away an inheritance for them that they don't have their father right now, right? Security, safety, these are best case scenarios in this world. They're not guaranteed. It's not wrong to plan for the future. It is sin to allow future plans to take precedent over the kingdom, to take precedent over what God is speaking to you right now. If tomorrow, okay, tomorrow, if you were to lose everything, every, I mean Job levels of everything, right? Like if you were to lose every savings account, every piece of property, every investment portfolio, every collection, would you have peace about how you've lived your life? If the answer is no, then you've probably been living for yourself and not for something that goes way beyond you way beyond your time here on the earth, of way more eternal value. Because the kingdom, that's eternal, and it cannot be destroyed. So James is reminding us that our hierarchy of priorities is supposed to be different from the world's. Everything we do should be defined by our desire to enact the will of God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus, in Matthew 19, he says, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, even the poorest of us in this room, we're pretty rich in the global, eternal perspective. <laughs> pretty rich. And it's hard for us to accept this. A rich person has learned how to achieve what they believe to be some semblance of power and control, right? They've learned to depend on it because they've seen what it can accomplish for them. It is much more difficult for a person to admit that their way is futile, that they're vapor. It's much more difficult for that person to admit that they need something that they cannot obtain for themselves, right? 
It's hard for Elon Musk to accept that he needs something from someone, right? That kind of person, not Elon himself, I'm not judging him, but that kind of person, they've been allowed the deception that their effort can yield exactly what they desire. But it's an illusion. It takes true wisdom to accept that even the richest person for the longest time is but a vapor. It's a blip on the timeline in regards to the measure of all eternity. It's nothing. The sin is not planning for the future. It is planning for the future as if Jesus is not the beginning and the end, as if he's not the Alpha and the Omega, as if he doesn't go before and behind your plans. Whether or not someone is rich or poor in regards to earthly wealth, it is the poor in spirit. Those who understand that even the riches of us are poor in the eyes of eternity who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who know that everything we have is truly God's anyway. Such a person has nothing to lose, for in Christ they already have a heavenly wealth overflowing and abundant, right? Everything that I have already belongs to God. This is why the discipline of tithing is so important, right? Even though it's so difficult. Every time my wife and I get on the computer and we hit that give button, there's a level of insecurity and control that we have to let go of. And when I do that, I realize I am not commanded by the power structures of this world. I do not bow to the idea that I need money. Everything I have is already God's anyways. So I give for the furthering of his kingdom and his church. But that's hard. It's hard. And again, what lies behind this kind of arrogance that I can control my future, that I can plan for things, that kind of pride that I can somehow control the outcome, what's behind it is actually anxiety and fear. Remember how the meanest bully is the most oppressed and the most insecure? Boasting about tomorrow, being arrogant in my schemes, is birthed out of the reality that I'm actually really insecure and fearful about tomorrow. So I'm grasping for control. We're going to do another Yoda quote, and I want you to not fail me this time. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate. Thank you. Oh, praise God for you. Yes. <laughs> Anxiety and fear, when they fester, when they take the throne, it breeds nothing good. Nothing good. Anxiety and fear will give us anger and pride. But for the Christian, anxiety and fear, when coupled with submission to Jesus, submission to Christ, that's what gives me peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Because I'm anxious about things, but then I remember not to be. <laughs> and by everything, with prayer and thanksgiving in my heart, I present my request to God. And the peace which transcends my understanding, transcends the concept of this world, they guard my heart. Because they remind me of what I'm actually participating in. Something of a much bigger value than what I have right in front of me. So what is at the forefront of our priorities? Is it the wealth of the kingdom or the wealth of this world? I think that Jesus wants to cure this fear in us before it becomes arrogance. I think he wants to heal this anxiety in us that he wants to comfort us and reassure us before we get to that place of pride and anger. That's why I love Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we drink, or what shall we eat, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Simple words, profound truth, difficult to live out. As you go about your week this week, I want you to remember the Chinese finger trap. It's silly, I know, it's cheesy. I'm a pastor and a dad, what do you want from me? <laughs> but the more we try to command control in our lives, the more we try to muscle our way into our own outcomes, the more entrapped you become. Surrender. That's when you experience freedom. Surrender to Jesus. Trust in his values over the worldly ones. Let's open our communion elements together. Again, this is something that we take seriously. We do it every week, but don't let it become simply ritual. This is a moment for us to come to Jesus in gratitude for what he's done and repentance for what we've done. He exalts the humble, but opposes the proud. Jesus gave such a profound example of trust. Even when he was in the garden and praying to the Father, he said, God, if there is some way to change this, if there is some way that this can be different than what I'm about to experience, please, please tell me. But then after that, he says, but not my will, yours be done. And when we take these elements into ourselves, we take into our lives that kind of trust. And we pray that Jesus would embody in us what he was able to embody on the earth. When we lay down our life, that's when we find it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you took on the weight of sin, the consequence of death, so that we could be delivered from it. That you have given us a choice to partake in the eternal. We ask that as we go about our lives, we would do so in submission to you. That our priorities would be your will done, your kingdom come. We thank you for your sacrifice, for how much obedience and trust costed you. And we ask that you would give us the strength to do the same. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.